From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Governor Newsom has responded to increasing numbers of COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations by reinstating significant restrictions. Local indoor dining, bars, wineries, and museums are all off limits for the next three weeks. This after many of these businesses just reopened. We'll hear from listeners in the businesses most affected. Also, the latest on COVID-19 research as we're joined with yet another one of our terrific medical experts. We'll look at the progress being made toward vaccines and the new FDA requirements for a vaccine that were released this week. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us the day before a national holiday when we prepare to celebrate Saturday's Independence Day. But for many people who are working, tomorrow is the national holiday. We will be off tomorrow in the first hour, but we'll still have film week for you coming up at 11 o'clock tomorrow with our critics reviewing Hamilton. This the filmed version of the Broadway stage production with Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, Philippa Sue, Leslie Odom Jr., uh, the great cast, including David Diggs. Uh, we'll uh, hear what our critics think of the filmed version of Hamilton, which is streaming on Disney Plus starting tomorrow. We'll also hear about uh, the French drama The Truth with Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche and John Lewis' Good Trouble documentary about the civil rights activist. That all coming up on Film Week tomorrow at 11 o'clock right here on KPCC. Well, Governor Newsom yesterday threw the car in reverse, so to speak, not too long after indoor dining and restaurants and bars opening and other moves to uh, relieve some of the lockdown that came out of COVID-19 restrictions decided because of the rising number of cases and hospitalizations that indoor dining would be banned in 19 of California's most populous counties. It affects essentially every county within the KPCC listening area. So later this hour, we're going to hear from those most affected by it. If you have a restaurant where you had reopened indoor dining, if you operate a bar, if you work in any of these establishments, maybe you're with a museum that had just reopened or was just planning to reopen open, and now you're not able to do that for the next three weeks. We look forward to hearing from you in the next half hour. But we begin with the very latest on the science of COVID-19 with epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Brewer. He's professor of medicine at UCLA and has served on the advisory boards of the World Health Organization, the National Institutes of Health, and the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Brewer, good to have you with us again. Thank you very much for having me back. Let's talk first about the uh, large number of cases that we are seeing uh, in in a number of places around the country, including in Southern California. We've also seen an increase in hospitalizations, but not yet commensurate with the increase in the number of overall cases. What are you anticipating that we're going to see about severity of symptoms and hospitalizations? Well, I think the critical issue, Larry, is which populations are getting affected. So 
you're correct. We're seeing a surge in cases and hospitalizations are going up, but we really haven't seen a, a surge in deaths. And part of that is if you look both locally and nationally, uh, 80% of deaths occur in individuals over the age of 65, most with comorbid diseases. And in fact, almost 40% of over 40% of all the deaths in the country have occurred in individuals who live in long term care facilities. So I think the key is going to be, do we have those outbreaks in our long term care facilities? And if we do, then I think we're going to be in for a very difficult time. Have we done any more to uh, try and isolate and protect those that work in those long-term care facilities? Well, I, I think the fact that we aren't seeing the surge in deaths suggests to me that, in fact, yes, they are doing a good job of trying to prevent those outbreaks from happening. And so while there clearly is increasing community spread so far, it has not spilled over to that particularly vulnerable population yet. So are are we, in a sense, being overly concerned then with these restrictions being put back in place? If we're essentially talking about younger people going to bars, uh, people going into restaurants, going to the beach, these sorts of things, do we need to be so concerned about that? Well, it, it's a great question. And, and the answer is long-term care facilities don't exist in bubbles and isolation, right? So so the people who work there will be going from there out into the community and back, and they'll have to get deliveries. So I, I think the more we have community spread, the greater the chance that there will be outbreaks, particularly among our most vulnerable populations. So I think anything we can do to reduce that community spread will then spill over and be a way of protecting our our truly vulnerable and high-risk groups. Of course, controlling the community spread does come with with very heavy financial costs associated with it. Um, What if instead we invested significant public funding in um, PPE for those that work in long-term care facilities? Um, We uh, provided... um, hotel rooms for them to be able to stay in so they're not as exposed to the community? Would there not be other ways that might actually be more cost-effective and provide more direct protection for those most vulnerable? So you're exactly right that we should be thinking more about how we build our public health response. So every, essentially every country in the world had a pandemic preparedness plan after the original SARS outbreak in 2002-2003 because of this concern. We're very concerned that we would have a pandemic like the one we're in right now. And in none of those pandemic plans was the correct response, shut down your entire economy. And so what we really need to be doing, you're exactly right, is focusing on building out that public health response. So that means making sure everybody who needs to be tested is tested, everybody who tests positive is isolated, that contacts are traced and any contacts that are positive 
are, are also isolated. Anyone exposed is put into quarantine. So doing those kinds of things that we know how to do, but still haven't got quite to the level where they need to be. We're talking with UCLA professor of medicine and epidemiologist, Dr. Timothy Brewer. If you have questions for him about COVID-19, about its spread, about the public health measures being taken to try and control the spread of the coronavirus, we're at 866 KPCC 866-893-5722 or the Air Talk page kpcc.org. Um, I want to ask you as an epidemiologist a question I've been asking all of our guests uh, for the past week or so. Why is there so little detail and information being provided to the public about those who are being hospitalized uh, or going into ICUs about where the likely source of contracting COVID-19 was uh, came from. My understanding is that there are not uniform, detailed questionnaires that people or their family members fill out to provide that kind of information so it can all be collected. And as a result, it's, you know, for those of us in the public, we, we get the most general of warnings, but almost no detailed information about sources of spread. Why not? Well, so one issue is privacy concerns and HIPAA concerns. So some of those data probably cannot legally be be released. But but what you're describing is essentially good contact tracing. And so hopefully the Los Angeles County Public Health Department has those data and they are following up on where those outbreaks are occurring given the level of spread that's going on in the community right now. So in Los Angeles right now, our case rates are running about 1,000 per 100,000. To put that in perspective, that's more than double what we were back in April and the beginning of May. So so that is a substantial amount of, of people to be trying to track down and pull that information together. But but in fairness to the county, they they actually have a fairly decent website that has um, dashboards on testing, demographics, hospitalizations. So it's a little difficult to plow through, but the the information is there if you're interested in trying to to access it. I, it doesn't give me the information I'm looking for because it doesn't tell you the likely source of transmission and even the demographic data. There's a lot of that missing because it's not collected from a lot of people, what their race and ethnicity is. So that information to me is just so general. I, I, I don't find it particularly helpful in understanding the extent of risk from particular types of activities. And I understand maybe they can't. I, I, why, I have to say I don't understand why you can't use questionnaires that are then anonymized and that information public. I don't see how that's a HIPAA violation if if that information, and if people don't want to fill it out, you couldn't force them to, but probably many people would would be happy to comply and fill those out. So, so if I understand the question correctly, what you would like to know is something like there was an outbreak in Century City Westfield Mall, and so yeah, we or I shouldn't, went, shouldn't go there. Yeah, or I went so, to an extended family gathering. No one was face covering, and 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 uh, you know there were 
50 people within, uh, you know, one one ballroom and and uh, 10 people got it. Or um, the only place I've been out publicly has been to the beach. And that's the likely source of me contracting it was, you know, walking on the boardwalk or thing. That sort of information that it would just give us much more sort of detail on. And it wouldn't be definitive, of course. It would just be giving us a bit more of these slices of activity and people's perceptions of of where they likely were exposed. Sure. And and the answer, I, I don't know the answer, but it it's the possibilities could be one is that the transmission is so widespread that you really can't localize it to one particular set of activities or locations. Or the other possibility is either they have those data and they have not yet published them in a way that you and I, I would agree with that, that would be useful information, or or they don't. And I just don't know for certain that would be a, a good question to, to ask them, ask the county public health department. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Nancy in Long Beach is concerned about hospitals being overwhelmed given the increasing number of positive tests for COVID-19 and with the increases that we're always uh, already seeing. She wants to know what are some of the potential impacts we could see from that? So the big concern, Nancy, is that as the number of cases rises, it does affect the capacity of hospitals to take care of patients with non-COVID problems. So uh, what happened earlier on in the outbreak is hospitals actually cut back on elective procedures. But even though we call them elective, they're really not. They still need to be done. And so that's, that's a challenge. And I think all of us are very concerned about the rising hospitalization rates. We're talking with UCLA epidemiologist and professor of medicine, Dr. Timothy Brewer. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. With the closure of indoor dining areas and bars particularly, uh, Dr. Brewer, do you think it, it likely that these are significant sources of transmission, particularly with restaurants that are not complying with distancing and masking? So we know that um, COVID-19 is more likely to spread indoors than outdoors. So outdoors, you have substantially higher ventilation, more dispersion of the respiratory droplet particles. And the critical factors for transmission are proximity and amount of time together. So the closer you are to someone who's contagious, if you're susceptible, and the longer the amount of time you spend with them, particularly indoors more than outdoors, more like transmission is going to occur. So bars where people are tight together for long periods of time are probably uh, one place where it happens. And we know from outbreaks in other states, there have been large outbreaks associated with going to bars and pubs, for example. And we've seen the photos of places where people are, you know, right there together drinking, uh, not with any face covering, because that's impossible when you're drinking a beverage. Uh, We're talking with Dr. Timothy Brewer of UCLA. Um, 
Let's see. Uh, KM on Twitter uh, asks, what about the impact of illnesses on families without health insurance, without sick days, living in small spaces where it's difficult to isolate? Getting sick is a no picnic for some percentage of cases. KM with with her thoughts on that. And I was just wondering, uh, Dr. Brewer, um, are are to your knowledge, are we seeing many of these cases where people are not covered by insurance or in California not covered under Medi-Cal? So it's a great question for which I don't know the answer. My understanding uh, from one of the bills that Congress passed is it was supposed to cover medical care associated with COVID-19, but but that would be a good question to ask a, a health policy expert. I think, though, what the question does highlight is it highlights the need for us to take a more comprehensive policy response to the pandemic. We should make sure that everybody has access to health care, regardless of whether it's COVID-19 or something else. And, and we should make sure that everybody has the right to stay home when they're sick without fear of losing their job or losing income. So those are two important policy steps that we could take that would help not only with the COVID-19 pandemic, but with other medical problems as well. We've had listeners who've called in describing you know, being back at work and having co-workers arriving who were symptomatic and, and working probably because um, they didn't have a financial alternative. Larry tweets at AirTalk, case fatality is down because of improved treatments, proning, anticoagulation, remdesivir dexamethasone, antiplatelet drugs, along with lower median age of infected individuals. Social distancing has saved thousands of lives by allowing for these advances. Uh, You agree with those observations, Dr. Brewer? So I, I certainly agree that case fatality rates are down. So they had been running up around 7 8% in the country and in the state. In California now, they're down about 2.5%. The country as a whole is about 3.8%. Los Angeles is around 3%. I suspect that a big part of that is the fact that we're picking up more mild to moderate cases. So that's probably the number one factor. I do agree that our care of COVID-19 patients, especially the sickest ones in the intensive care unit, has improved. As we've had more experience, we've gotten much better at it. I think dexamethasone probably is very helpful for that small percentage of patients who are truly very sick on oxygen, ventilated. And remdesivir probably has some benefit, um, but we still need to get better than, than where we are. We'll continue our conversation with UCLA professor of medicine and epidemiologist, Dr. Timothy Brewer, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org, back in one minute. You're listening to AirTalk on 89.3 KPCC. In just a few minutes, we'll open up the phones to hear from you if you're one of those most affected by Governor Newsom's order yesterday that for the next three weeks, indoor dining, bars, 
Museums are off limits. Card rooms are included in that as well to try and control the spread of COVID-19 with increasing numbers of cases and increasing numbers of hospitalizations. As you're probably aware uh, as well, beaches largely closed in Southern California. First was L.A. County beaches, then Ventura County, then the state of California, and then Orange County's beaches. So uh, no beaches for the 4th of July and no professional fireworks shows that I'm aware of. Those two have been canceled because of concerns over crowds gathering to watch the fireworks. It's going to be a very, very different Independence Day weekend. No no question about that. Uh, let's take another listener question. Uh, Lynn in Brentwood says, how do we know that the current uptick we're seeing isn't a result of the recent protests? Well, we don't know for certain. Anytime people get together in large groups, uh, you have people who have not previously been together, there's the possibility for transmission. At the same time, though, we were also relaxing our shelter-in-place orders. So while you could probably figure this out with a, a detailed study, at the moment it would be difficult to say how much was due to the relaxing of sheltering in place versus protests versus just people going out and interacting more. Rick in Redondo Beach says people with diabetes are more at risk, but why? And if my blood sugar level is under control, am I okay? So, Rick, the fact that your blood sugar level is under control is terrific, and that will help you out not only with COVID-19, but just the complications of diabetes itself. Um, Probably related to the receptors associated with COVID-19, those ACE2 receptors, they may be upregulated in certain conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes, meaning there are more of them on the cells, more chances for the virus to get into the cells. Still, though, we're trying to figure that out. That's just a a hypothesis or a guess at this point. Uh, We have uh, David in Long Beach wondering the chances that the coronavirus will mutate and that re-exposure becomes a possibility. So, so Dave, all RNA viruses mutate as they replicate. So they, they make mistakes as they, they spread. We call those mistakes mutations. The real question is, do the mutations make any important difference? Do they make the virus more deadly, more easily to transmit? The good news is most mutations have no effect on the virus at all. In terms of can you get it again, it just has to do with whether the parts of the virus where the antibodies bind to change. If they do, for example, influenza, they change fairly frequently, and that's why you have to get a flu shot every year, then yes, you could potentially be infected by that new altered altered strain. But at least so far, no clear evidence that that's happened. All right. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Claire in Los Villas says, I went to see my doctor. He wasn't wearing a mask. He told me he didn't need to because he'd already had COVID-19. Does that make any sense to you, Dr. Brewer? 
Well, it looks like most people who have been infected uh, will generate antibodies, will have an immune response. It usually takes somewhere between two to five weeks. And there are data to suggest that those antibodies will neutralize the virus. However, I would like to see that doctor and every healthcare professional demonstrate good behavior by wearing facial coverings and making sure they're washing their hands and doing the other appropriate things to prevent transmission. All right, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Jinsey tweets at AirTalk, a neighbor took a COVID test, took five days after hearing he was exposed to get the test, another five days to get results. How can we get improvement there, especially when celebrities and athletes seem to get instant tests and results? You know, it's interesting, I've, I've been hearing from people that I know, not athletes or celebrities, some getting the 15 minute result test, others getting the test results within 24 to 48 hours. So why is there such a wide variation, uh, Dr. Brewer? So one reason there's a wide variation, Larry, is there are a number of different kinds of tests. So those 15-minute tests are antigen-based tests or called point-of-care tests. Then the ones that take longer are PCR-based tests that often get sent to a lab. And the turnaround time there can be anywhere from a couple of hours to to days or more. So that's one reason for the variation is there are different kinds of tests. And then it just has to do with volume. Some places still do not have sufficient testing capacity, and so there are delays in getting results. Okay, so it's kind of, it sounds like it's sort of the luck of the draw where you go to get your test um, how long it'll take to get an appointment, and how long it'll take to get results. That That is my sense as well, and I think that's part of what we talked about earlier, of the need to still build out that public health response. We really should be trying to get to a point where anybody can get tested who needs to be tested and get those results the same day. That's what we should be shooting for. I, I want to uh, open the phones now for you to call in if you are directly affected by Governor Newsom's order yesterday that for the next three weeks in uh, the most populous California counties, which includes uh, the six uh, that our signal covers here in Southern California, that indoor dining, uh, bars, and museums, other indoor spaces like that need to be closed. I'd like to hear from you if you work at or have a restaurant or a bar, if you're with a museum here in Southern California that maybe just reopened or was just on the cusp of reopening. I'd like to hear about how you're dealing with this. What a tremendous roller coaster ride um, for business people trying to run a, a restaurant or a bar opening up. Uh, now having to close down indoor dining. And if you don't have any outdoor capacity or it's severely limited, can you even operate with just outdoor tables? 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. JP says, I'm concerned about going to church. They went online, but now they're reopening the church. Are there regulations that the church has to adhere to for those gatherings. So generally churches should be following the same regulations as as other organizations of similar type. Um, 
religion uh, is challenging. That's a that's a good question to ask the public health department because uh, I know religion is is thought of as being different than traditional commercial commercial activities, but but the risks are exactly the same. If you're in an indoor space and you're close together uh, and you're spending substantial amount of time together, then that will facilitate transmission if there are uh, infectious people and susceptible people in there at the same time. And I think there are uh, state limits on... Um on, on how many people you can have. I think it was like 50 people inside a church. Um, so that that limits. There has to be distancing. Um, so there, there are a number of different rules that are in, let's see, it's limiting attendance to 25% of a building's capacity or up to 100 te- attendees, whichever is the lower number. So if you got a smaller place of worship, you'd be limited um to 25% of the building's capacity if it's a very large church that, you know, seats more than 400, then 100 would be the max that you could put in in that building. And uh, I know that choirs are also discouraged because, again, you're in close quarters with someone and you're projecting when you sing. And and so the droplets there, I, I know, are cause for concern. And uh, Dr. Brewer, that, that's been something that uh, outbreaks have been linked to choirs. They have. That's exactly right. And so you're correct that people singing in close quarters is something probably you don't want to be doing right now. And so finding ways to hold your choir practices outside if possible, where you can maintain more distance from each other, uh, maybe working in smaller groups. Uh, I think these would be all things that you could try to do to minimize potential risk and still engage in some kind of activity. Again, I'd like to hear from those of you that work at or uh, own or manage restaurants that had recently reopened inside dining, and now you're not able to do that. What are you going to do with your restaurant? Are you going to stay open and try and accommodate people outdoors, or is that impossible to do, either because you don't have the space or with distancing outside, the numbers just don't work out for you to stay, uh, be able to stay open without uh, taking a bath financially? If you have a bar, the same question. You recently reopened. Now you've got to close for at least three weeks. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. If you work at a museum or have a museum that you um, administer, manage, like to hear again about what the impact is for you as well. From South Los Angeles, Lucretia uh, says, uh, we're hearing about long-term impacts of the virus affecting younger people. What do we know about that so far? So, Lucretia, we're still trying to learn that because, remember, we've only had it about six months, but there are data to show that the virus can cause scarring in the lungs. We call that fibrosis. And I think it is a concern for those of us who take care of COVID-19 patients, what will happen over over time. I think that's a very important question that we need to be following up as we see more people who have recovered from having COVID-19. 
Nick tweets at AirTalk, there's a working paper circulating uh, that concludes protests didn't increase COVID cases. Uh, it claims protests led to a net reduction in movement and a net increase in social distancing. The rise in counties with major protests was no greater than those without. Nick, I appreciate it. I saw that study. It, as you indicate, working paper has not been peer-reviewed. And then the implications, if that is borne out, Dr. Brewer, would that be good news for people? going to the beach and other larger scale outdoor activities? I think in general, outdoor activities are safer than indoor activities. And there are data out of uh, Japan, for example, that suggested when they did their aggressive contact tracing, they couldn't really document any cases that were associated with outdoor transmission. So I think outdoor is a better better place to be than indoors right now for avoiding COVID-19. Let's talk with Steve in Torrance. Steve, I understand you're a restaurant owner. Are you comfortable sharing the name of your establishment? No, I prefer not to. Life really sucks for us right now. I think life really sucks for all restaurant owners right now. Um, I think the leadership at the top, at both the city and the state level and the national level, has created this debacle. Um bringing people off payroll, their fear, and now having to, I mean, excuse me, off unemployment, not having to put them back on unemployment, wasted food, wasted time. I mean, it's a mental show. Uh, Yeah, please uh, bleep that out. We can't use that language on the air. Um, So, uh, Steve, I understand uh, this is just utter chaos for restaurant owners and for the very reasons that you mentioned. Um, what are, are you going to be able to serve outside at all, or is that impossible? We can serve outside, but that's, you know, like all the other restaurant and bar owners will agree with, it is a slow bleed as opposed to just putting us out of our misery. Um, you know, one of the worst things was when they reopened you know, they basically made a statement on a Friday morning. Everybody's open. That was it. Everybody's open with very little guidance. So it was just a rush to try to get things open. I mean, these are small business owners who are, who are dying. And the guidance from the city and the state was absolutely horrendous. They set everybody up to fail. They should have provided the training and the guidance and said, We're gonna, you guys are going to be open in a week. Get ready to go. Um, here's some training videos. Yeah. So you just you just been left, Steve. I I I can't imagine the frustration uh, that you and other restaurateurs are experiencing, as well as the just the financial uh, devastation that comes with this. Thank you for for sharing uh, the experiences, and we wish you the best. Unfortunately, things are just looking looking so uh, so difficult matthew in west hollywood um you comfortable sharing the name of your restaurant uh, absolutely i i operate connie and ted's restaurant on santa monica boulevard yeah yeah so um what are you you reopened inside right we were open inside and we, we were fortunate enough to have a patio but as of noon yesterday we have a total of seven tables um which is completely not sustainable. Um, We're going to venture out into our parking lot. We were able to get permits and everything in order, but we have to invest more money in that, in rentals and in things like that, to to make it serviceable as a dining room. And it's risky. 
Yeah, well, and and so let's say you you put the maximum number of tables you can distance in your parking lot. Can can that pencil out for you? Can you break even? Possibly, maybe on a good day. Okay. All right. And and you've got food that's, you know, you you got food that's expensive. So um and and um your overhead is 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 just high on ingredients and food. So um there's obviously significant risk involved in this. Yes. And it's a it's just it's an added risk. But we also feel as though we have no choice. Our to-go business has taken off, but that's not enough. Yeah. We're doing okay with the indoor and outdoor dining, and that was okay. But then the news that came, you know, just, yeah, was just, yeah, it's devastating. I'm sure, Matthew. Thank you for sharing with us what you're going through. We're going to continue on air talk on KPCC again. I'm asking those with bars, with restaurants, if you work in those. And uh, yesterday, you got the word you're closed for three weeks. Please share. Uh, how you're coping with this. Also, museums subject to closure, card rooms as well. If you're an employee at any of those places or manage them, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Back in one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. We're talking with UCLA's Dr. Timothy Brewer, epidemiologist, UCLA professor of medicine. Dr. Brewer, um, you undoubtedly um, well aware of the kinds of financial strain that restaurateurs and bar owners are going through right now. Just your thoughts on, on the governor's decision of closing uh, indoor dining and bars for the next three weeks? Well, I think it's clear we needed to do something, particularly in L.A. County, where our hospitalizations are are, are going up. Um, that's a political decision as to whether or not that was the right step and, and whether three weeks is the right amount of time. Uh, I would agree with the person who called in that uh, at every level of government, we have not handled our public health response the way it should be. And ultimately, the way to control outbreaks is not to shut down businesses, it's to have effective public health responses. And we're still still not there. All right. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Ben in Highland in San Bernardino County says, I'm a restaurant owner, Taco Joe's. We're trying to develop a car hop service in our parking lot, similar to what Sonic does, where people go to the car and take people's orders. Drive-in is, uh, of course, a, a very old concept, which, to my knowledge, was pioneered here in Southern California. California, and that would be something you have in a large enough parking lot that potentially can do. 866-893-KPECC. Let's, uh, let's hear off from the museum side of things. Dave in Huntington Beach, thanks for joining us. What museum do you work at? Yeah, hi, Larry. Uh, I work at the uh, Lion Air Museum at John Wayne Airport, we're a World War II Air and Vehicle Museum, but every summer we run, we have a special automobile exhibit, 
just started yesterday was our first day and it looks like we're not going to be going for a while. It's the summer of Porsche this year and we've got some very rare cars, but it's disappointing that we can't uh, open up to the public so they can see these rare automobiles. Yeah. And did you have people that were actually coming back that, that knew that you were open? Uh, yeah, we were very crowded yesterday. I'm a senior docent, so I volunteer cause I'm retired. So I don't get paid, which is fine with me. Yeah. We had um, oh, over 30 people at one time in the museum, which is really unheard of for a uh, middle-of-the-week thing. And a lot of them were uh, automobile enthusiasts, uh, a lot of men from car clubs, things like that had come. And the weekend of the 17th, 18th, whatever that, yeah. we had the Orange County Porsche Club coming with their vehicles to put them on display, too. So it's very disappointing that uh, we've been shut down all this time. We also run a program for school kids in the spring. Um, and we give them lectures on World War II, and that was all shut down this year because the schools were closed. So it's very disappointing. Dave, I, I, I understand. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, the Lion Museum, and uh, by the way, General Lyon, who founded that museum with his collections, the uncle of our very longtime senior producer uh, of uh, Air Talk here on KPCC, Linda Othan and Gerard. So extended uh, part of the Air Talk family, so to speak. Let's talk next with Jonathan in El Segundo. I understand you also volunteer at a museum. Which one? Hi. Uh, yeah, we've. Uh, I volunteer with the Automobile Driving Museum. Yeah. I have my own full-blown job. I'm an engineer, but I volunteer with this museum because they're genuinely good people. They're one of the few museums where you could actually sit in the museum cars on weekends that give rides to people. And, you know, they're barely holding on right now. Actually, most of the full-time staff has gone into volunteer mode. And I'm not sure for sure, but I believe some of them are actually on unemployment. And so there, there was a lot of events that they had planned, and they had to cancel almost all. As of what, what they were doing in the in-between time, between when the COVID first started, so now was that they shut down the museum and they were holding outdoor events and they were trying their best to get income through that medium. But yeah. now I believe they're going to shut down again because they shut down in the very beginning. Jonathan, thank you for sharing that. So difficult again, you know, with, with, um, uh, museums just barely getting by and, you know, suffering a loss of contributions in many cases because of what's happened with the pandemic economy and, you know, everything else. And volunteers like yourself, many of whom I'm sure are concerned about their health. And that's also difficult. Jonathan, thank you for sharing that. Jesus in East Los Angeles says, I own three restaurants. One of them, La Tia, uh, was being remodeled with the pandemic. We decided we just can't reopen with all these changes. We don't know if we'll reopen at all. Jesus, that's so sad uh, that Latia uh, at risk and and um, potentially your other two restaurants as well. Uh, let's talk with uh, uh, Allegra in Culver City. Uh, Allegra, are you comfortable sharing the name of your restaurant? Yes, I am. Okay, what is it, please? Allegra California Cafe. Ah, very good. Uh, so have did you reopen? Yeah, so we first opened the restaurant in 2019, and then we closed for indoor dining when this happened in March. So we were just doing deliveries, curbside, uh, and takeout, pickup orders. And uh, we had to lay off several people. We brought some of them back on, and now, um, you know, closing the indoor space is hard for us. But we do have a back patio, fortunately, and a front patio. So 
well, at least be able to see tables, but people really aren't going out, and yeah, we've lost a lot of profits. I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to survive. And your restaurant's, what, almost a year old? Yes. So, so you're, you're pretty much a newbie, and to have this hit just months after you open, and then um, to have to rely on, on the small outdoor space, I, I can't imagine how, how difficult. Did you get PPP money from the government? I did. So I have three restaurants, and I got uh, PPP loans for all of them. And But the one for the newest restaurant got the least amount for whatever reason. I, I think they miscalculated, and uh, it's certainly not enough to get us by, so we did have to take out additional loans. Okay. Allegra, we wish you all the best and certainly hope that uh, your Culver City location is able to, to withstand this. James in Hollywood, I understand you're a, a sous chef, um, and just share with us what you're going through at your restaurant. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, um, I think, um, a lot of the back of the house is being extremely affected and I don't think their voices are being heard. Um, a lot of the dishwashers, a lot of the prep cooks, uh, and line cooks that, uh, I've worked with who are just kind of kept in the dark um, day after day dealing with this, being told, uh, you know, I, I know guys that didn't even receive their first round of unemployment and now being told to go back on unemployment. Um, it's just causing a lot of fear. And I don't feel like uh, a lot of these guys in the back of the house are being represented at all. So you feel like the, the owners of, of restaurants are not looking out for their concerns the same way they are the front of the house employees? I believe the owners are doing everything they can and they are, but I think it's just no one knows enough. Everyone is confused. Everyone's in a really bad situation and it sucks to see these guys who are the backbone of the restaurant industry yeah the ones that are getting screwed over the most uh they make the least amount of money and they're just kind of being left in the dark with every decision that gets made and it's uh it's just a shame james i appreciate you sharing uh the the plight of those who work in the back of the house and uh the challenges that they're facing uh this just um, incredibly difficult times for the hospitality industry. We're taking your calls. If you are a restaurateur, if you work in a restaurant like James is a sous chef, front or back of house, uh, if you work in a bar or own a bar, I'd like to hear from you, your experiences. Now that in California, the most populous counties, including all of uh, the ones served by KPCC here in Southern California have seen indoor dining, bars, uh, museums have also been closed, card clubs as well. 866-893-KPCC, back in one minute. One of our listeners posts on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Steve, the restaurant owner, owner voiced what I've been thinking as a customer. 
How in the world can a smaller restaurant manage with an open order that had zero notice for anyone? And now, to be closed again, I'm pulling for all our leaders to get it together, and obviously this is incredibly difficult, but the communication has been abysmal. They must get better at it immediately, badly fumbled. And Norma sarcastically responds, bad communication, but the governor's on the radio every day at noon. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Robert in downtown Los Angeles, I understand you work at a downtown bar, the association, is that right? Yes, sir. All right. And so you opened a couple of weeks ago. How were you doing? So our first week open, uh, we had to do a lot of cleaning. There's a lot of preparation, um, trying to make sure that we fulfilled all the different guidelines that we needed to make sure that our customers felt safe and that we were safe ourselves uh, working there. Uh, we took care of that within days. Um, and the, the company uh, that owns association also owns a couple more bars downtown. So there's a lot of cleaning and preparation to get it done. Once we got it all done, we had a really good turnout. Our customers felt safe. Uh, we had a really good turnout last week, and then we found out that we're closing. I think the real big issue is that uh, trying to find exactly how to maneuver around, like uh, how many employees you actually need to bring back because you only have up to 50% capacity, um, and the profit margins in this business and in this industry are so small that uh, it really was tough just figuring out what, what we we're going to do to make sure that we could be profitable by opening. And then uh, another really big issue for me is that uh, these guys that have come back to work, um, knowing that they're coming off unemployment, and then to just immediately get hit again, and now they're and where are they at in line for unemployment now? Uh, I know one of our cocktail servers still hasn't received unemployment from the first iteration, so yeah. she's really you know been uh, just affected by this. And to come back to work and then tell these that you have to go you know back on unemployment is really devastating. Yeah, Robert, just a terrible circumstance. At your bar, were people distancing like they needed to do and coming and going wearing masks? Were were people adhering to those those guidelines? Yeah, so um, because I'm a front door manager, my job is to make sure everyone knows the uh, uh, our protocol as, we, as they walk in, taking their temperature, making sure they keep their mask on. Luckily for us, we have booth seating. So we're able to get that social distancing because no one's allowed to order from the bar anymore. There's no dance floor. There's no DJ. Uh, but we still play music, more lounge uh, atmosphere now, um, which we're able to uh, work around that. But I'm sure there's multiple bars throughout the city that are not, are not able to, uh, you know, yeah. to do that social distancing to be able to make the money. Yeah, and having the booths a big advantage. Robert, thanks very much. Let me go back to our medical guest, Dr. Timothy Brewer, epidemiologist, professor at UCLA. Um, your thoughts about bars generally, if you have bars that were able to adhere to the protocols and, you know, some places do have booths, there can be, you know, barriers and the like. Are there ways do you think you can do it safely and have people drinking indoors? I think there certainly are things you can do to make things safer. For example, figuring out ways to increase ventilation and flow in indoor spaces. We do that in hospitals. You can design buildings that way. You do it in airplanes. Social distancing, it sounds like this particular bar, they were actually doing an excellent job of making sure people were 
staying apart? Um, so I, I think the answer is yes. And importantly, I think we really need our public health departments, both at the county and the state level, to be helping all these businesses with that guidance. We need to be giving them better guidance so that they can, in fact, open up in ways that are both financially viable and maintain the health of the employees and the customers. Let's talk with Karen in Pacific Palisades. I'm a little tight on time, Karen, but I want to hear you have a bar in Glendale, I understand. Yes, and we have fortunately had a parking lot in which we could, my husband built up a a raised patio for outdoor seating. We uh, checked temperature at the entrance and with a reduced menu, but it we opened last night and it looks, I mean, I'm hoping that this will at least allow us to weather this pandemic. Uh, fingers crossed and, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's minimal seating, but it, we're, we're off to a good start and we're just hoping that, um, you know, the whatever looks down on us. <laughs> well, Karen did, uh, just real quickly, um, did you open indoors ever or is this your reopening? Well, no, this was, um, we got closed in March uh, because of everything. And then uh, we didn't have an, we had an outdoor parking lot. We were very fortunate. And so we were able to uh, get the blessing from the city of Glendale to build it out as long as we had a handicap ramp and uh, parking space intact. So this is all new for us. um, But. All right. We wish you the best. The San Fernando, I understand, is the name of your bar in Glendale. Karen, thank you for being with us. And my thanks to Dr. Timothy Brewer. Dr. Brewer, thank you for being so generous with your time and coming on and taking all these questions from listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. We wish you a very safe and enjoyable Independence Day weekend. Dr. Timothy Brewer of UCLA's Professor of Medicine and Epidemiologist. Much more to come in hour number two of Air Talk on KPCC. Morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Pleasure to have you with us. Just a reminder that Film Week comes up tomorrow. Tomorrow, national holiday and observance of Independence Day. And on Film Week, our critics review the filmed version of the stage musical Hamilton. This actually filmed live on Broadway. I think it was a couple years or more ago that they actually uh, filmed this, and now it's being released on Disney+, and it's got the original Broadway cast of Lin-Manuel Miranda, of uh, Philippa Sue, Leslie Odom Jr., David Diggs, uh, Thomas Kale is the director, uh, and uh, we'll find out what our critics have to say about that tomorrow at 11 on Film Week. Also, the French drama The Truth, uh, which is uh, starring uh, Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche and John Lewis Good Trouble, a look uh, that uh, at the 60 plus years of social activism and legislative leadership of John Lewis. That's all tomorrow at 11 o'clock on Film Week on KPCC. Well, uh, for many who've been close watchers of NASCAR auto racing, 
and of Mississippi state politics. It might be shocking that just within uh, the past uh, couple of days, the Mississippi state legislature and the governor have signed off on removing the Confederate battle flag from Mississippi state flag. A couple of weeks ago, NASCAR banned the Confederate battle flag from all of its events. This has been a contentious issue for many years, both places, as well as throughout the American South. Joining us to talk about the flag, its symbolism, how it's perceived by different groups, and how it came to be ingrained within other cultural spheres within the American South, is professor of history at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, Matthew Delmont. He's the author of a number of books, uh, including Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Professor Delmont, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's talk first of all about just your your personal thoughts on the state of Mississippi and NASCAR taking these steps after years of criticism and controversy. Were you surprised this finally happened? I, I am surprised it finally happened. I think it's it's long overdue. Um, but I think for both of them, it's it's a really big moment. Um, I think symbols matter, and the Confederate flag is a symbol of. Uh, racial hatred and of slavery uh, in our country. And for those two, uh, a state and a, a large organization to take this step, um, I think it's a, a very important uh, statement about where they see themselves right now and where the country might go in the future. And for those who've supported retaining the Confederate battle flag, what are their arguments in favor of it? Uh, what to them does it culturally depict? So for folks who are in favor of maintaining the Confederate flag, they would normally say in public that it's about heritage and not hate. Um, so as referencing uh, some of the traditions of the South, both military traditions, but also just a, a way of life of the South, um, and that it's not purposely referencing slavery or white supremacy. That would be their argument. All right. Um, and and let's talk about in, in Mississippi. How did it happen to be the last state with this sort of official embrace of the Confederate battle flag? Well, the, these debates about what the Confederate battle flag means have been going on for 150 years. And so over the last, I'd say, two or three decades since the uh, civil rights era of the 1960s, um, it's become less and less tenable for institutions to maintain the Confederate flag. And so there were protests in the 1990s, 2000s against the remaining states that had the Confederate flag, um, eventually Alabama gave up and took theirs down. South Carolina gave up and took theirs down. Mississippi was really the last holdout. Um, and I think it speaks to how how deeply ingrained, uh, I guess, a, a love of that flag was among white Mississippians and, and particularly the politicians who, in the face of uh, really nationwide concern about it and concern among black Mississippians, they just they wanted to maintain that flag. So to see it finally come down is really a, a, a big step. You know, I, I think about even in popular culture was the old uh, TV series, The Dukes of Azure. Didn't didn't the car have a Confederate flag on it? It was just it's, it was sort of a shorthand symbol for the South. Exactly. Yeah, I, I grew up watching Dukes of Hazard. That was the General Lee that had the Confederate yeah. flag on. I played with I played with that race car. This is as a as a black kid in in Minneapolis, um, well before I really understood the history of what that flag meant. Yeah, and so I think it did. It was part of a successful campaign over generations to disassociate that flag from a history of slavery and white supremacy and make it just a um, a more common reference to the South. Um, and I think for folks who understand that history and have tried to um, articulate what the flag was really about and why it was a, a racist symbol. This has been a long fight to 
um, to get it brought down in, in states like Mississippi. We're talking with Dartmouth College professor Matthew Delmont. If you'd like to talk with him about his scholarship on the Confederate battle flag with these very significant recent developments of NASCAR banning the flag at its events and the state of Mississippi after years of controversy and heated criticism of the state keeping it in their state flag, the legislature and the governor agreeing to remove it from the state flag. 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. You can also ask a question on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. I'm also particularly interested if if you're someone who is from the American South, um, your perceptions growing up of the Confederate flag, what it represented to you, your feelings about it, and what your feelings are now about it being removed from these very prominent uh, places where it's been displayed, 866-893-KPCC. Professor Delmont, can you talk a little bit about um, how the flag uh, enjoyed a resurgence? When, when did it, because uh, there was a gap right after the Civil War and then to when it became popularized later. Yes. Um, so the Civil War was fought between 1861 and 1865. After the South is defeated in 1865, you don't see um, an immediate wave of Confederate monuments or circulation of the Confederate flag. It's really about four decades later in the 1890s that the first wave of monuments the Confederates start to show up um, and the Confederate flag starts to recirculate. Um, what people attribute it to, what scholars attribute it to, are these moments of uh, political transformation and of black Americans demanding rights. That's where you see um, the popularity of the Confederate flag start to surge within the South. Um, so in the 1890s, that's when um, white Southerners are passing Jim Crow laws. Those are the official laws that mandate racial segregation. Um, you see another wave in the 1910s, right around World War One as some of the first mainstream civil rights organizations are taking shape and African-Americans are fighting for their country and coming home and demanding rights. Um, that's when a film like Birth of a Nation gets created and presents this kind of romanticized vision of the South. Uh, there's another wave then in uh, the World War II era. A number of white Southern soldiers go off to uh, the European and, and Pacific theaters. They bring Confederate flags with them. And so when they uh, liberate towns in Italy, in France, they fly the Confederate flag either alongside the American flag or instead of the American flag. Um, just after the war, the Dixiecrats, Southern politicians, break away from the mainstream Democratic Party. They take up the Confederate flag as their as their battle flag. And then the 1960s, a lot of white Southerners pick up the Confederate flag again as a way to express their uh, resentment or backlash to the civil rights era. So you see it kind of cyclically, um, the flag come back for specific political purposes. And is is any of this relate to um, Southerners' feeling of being dismissed or looked down upon by people in the rest of the country, accents being ridiculed and, and, um, and people in the South being caricatured? Is part of this related to sort of a Southern pride uh, movement? I think absolutely. I think for a lot of white Southerners um, from end of the Civil War, uh, I would say even into today, the Confederate flag represents a way of them um, expressing their pride in Southern heritage. Um, I think that part is true. Um, it's also a way of expressing uh, uh, their own sense that they won't be sort of under the thumb of what, who they would consider to be nor northern uh, elites or liberals. Um, I think those sentiments can be true at the same time that the, the flag has 
very obvious roots in uh, slavery and white supremacy. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that that was an alternative, but just an additional yeah. factor of sort of um, cultural assertion in the wake of ridicule. Uh, we're talking with Dartmouth uh, College professor Matthew Delmont, professor of history. And again, I'm, I'm particularly interested uh, for those listening, if you are from the South, um, what your your memories are of the Confederate battle flag, uh, your associations with it, and your thoughts about these two prominent places, uh, the flag being removed, the Mississippi state flag and NASCAR banning the flag from its races. Also joining us is professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Asheville, Daniel Pierce. He focuses on Southern and Appalachian history. He's the author of Real NASCAR, White Lightning, Red Clay, and Big Bill France. Professor Pierce, good to have you with us. Are you there, Professor Pierce? All right, we'll try and get you uh, back on. Let's uh, take a listener call here from Tiffany in Burbank. Tiffany, I understand you grew up in Daytona? I did. And so, you know, just it was I was actually down the street from uh, NASCAR, the, the Daytona 500, where it's held. And I really, I saw the Confederate flag a lot growing up. And I, it never really bothered me, you know, it's so strange. I'm African-American, and my father would always say we were going to live and die free in Dixie. And so it was this thing where, yeah, the Confederate flag, I understood it represented slavery, but somehow I didn't really um, register the meaning behind it, um, It, you know, in my heart. It wasn't until I went to Virginia for college, and I had friends who were from the North, And their reaction to the flag really brought home that, oh, this is something that I need to take more stock of. Were you surprised when when your friends in college who weren't from the South um, were were sort of shocked about the, the Confederate flag? I was. It was kind of a little, I was a little taken aback. I was kind of like, why are you guys so fearful of this? Like, it was like if they saw someone wearing it or if it was on the back of a truck, they would immediately have um, negative connotations towards it. And so then I had to really take stock of why I didn't feel that way. And it was mainly because I think it was so prevalent that you just began to disregard it. Yeah. And t- so, Tiffany, what are your feelings now about NASCAR removing the flag and Mississippi taking it off their state flag? You know, I honestly think it's a really good uh, step, mainly because it's starting to teach us the history. And we can take stock of it from um, a historical standpoint. And it's, it's more so, you know, removing Confederate monuments and flags I think it's more important that we're talking about it and than anything than the actual removing of it, you know, so that we we start to have a different connotation and understanding of our history in America. Tiffany, I, I appreciate it. And what are, what are your feelings about growing up in, in the South? Do you have uh, a sense still of association or, or pride in it, or um, do you have negative feelings about it? No, you know what? I have, ex- um, I'm so proud to be from the South. Uh, even, you know, 
even with the struggles and being African-American, there's just a really warm feeling for me personally when I think of home. Tiffany, I appreciate it so much. Very eloquently said. Tiffany, from uh, originally from Daytona Beach, uh, Florida, uh, joining us today from Burbank and talking about how just... Um, regular it was to have the Confederate flag, uh, particularly growing up where NASCAR's biggest race was at. Professor Delmont, your your thoughts about uh, what Tiffany was just saying? Yeah, I think she makes a great point about how the Confederate flag and Confederate monuments are are normalized in many parts of the country and are just part of the landscape. That particularly if you grow up in a place, you walk by flag every day, you walk by a monument every day, you don't necessarily give it a lot of thought until you go to someplace else and are, are exposed to some different ideas about it. So I think that's a really important point about how sort of deeply ingrained uh, the symbol has become in, in large parts of the country. Uh, and are, in your mind, are there alternative symbols of of Southernness or Southern culture that, that don't hearken slavery and Jim Crow and 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 other um, abuses of African Americans. Absolutely, I mean, um, you could even just focusing on the musical realm, right? You could put up flags to to Hank Williams and Loretta Lynn rather than to the Confederacy. The the South, I mean, all regions of the country, I think, have very rich uh, histories and traditions that they should well be proud of. The South definitely does. Um, politically, in many ways, I mean, many of the best, the most important civil rights leaders came from the South. Um, uh, food, music, culture, all aspects of it can be celebrated. I think it's th- this particular symbol and the, the associated symbols are the ones that um, have represented racial hatred for so long that there are many better ways to celebrate Southern heritage. My son and I, a couple of years ago, did a coast-to-coast driving trip through the American South and uh, you know, going to Memphis and hitting four museums in a day devoted to um, music um, and, and the incredible sound of Memphis and uh, going on the, the trails of, of, of the civil rights marches that are such a, a huge part of our history and seeing all the different subcultures that are a part of the American South. It is incredibly rich and, uh, and highly varied as well. Uh, let me uh, introduce, I think we have him now, Daniel Pierce of University of North Carolina, Asheville, historian and author of the book Real NASCAR. Professor Pierce, thank you for being with us. Um, were you surprised that NASCAR finally took this step and banned the flags? Uh, a little, but, um, you know, I think as uh, Matt mentioned, uh, this historical moment, and uh, as historians, we know that, that uh, things don't change until they do. And uh, that was the case with NASCAR, I think, that they were uh, faced with a historical moment. And I think one very important thing in all of this uh, issue of the flag is that, and, and of Southern symbols um, is that you know, for so long, uh, African-American voices were not uh, consulted on these issues. And I think uh, when Bubba Wallace, the um, only African-American driver in NASCAR, spoke up, um, and again, the, the historical moment with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, I think NASCAR uh, had to take notice of what was going on. They had tried kind of passively before, after the Charleston shootings, to encourage people to not bring Confederate flags. But I think it was time to take a stand. Um, 
All right, we'll continue our conversation with our two historians uh, talking with us about NASCAR uh, in its ban on the Confederate battle flag at all of its events and the state of Mississippi uh, removing and doing it very quickly after years and years of, of uh, fighting over that, removing the Confederate flag from its state flag. You're listening to Wear Talk on KPCC. I'd love to hear listeners who are from the American South. Uh, you talk about uh, what the flag uh, there has meant to you and your thoughts about being removed from these two prominent locations. Back in one minute on Air Talk. We're talking about the many years of controversy and criticism over the Confederate battle flag being displayed in the American South. And then, in fairly quick succession, NASCAR banned the flag from all of its gatherings, uh, a huge move where, where uh, you know, the infield and elsewhere, Confederate flags are just all over the place. And uh, then Mississippi, the last state to have uh, as part of its state flag, the Confederate battle flag. I'm asking uh, those who come from the South to share their observations about the Confederate flag. Nelson in Silver Lake, I understand you grew up in Dallas. What, what What's your history with the flag? So, yes, I grew up in the South in Dallas. And, uh, and honestly, I was quite apathetic when it came to the flag. I grew up watching Dukes of Hazard. The flag was pretty prevalent. Um, but then it wasn't until um, there were instances, for example, when at, at one point I was chased at night uh, by a group of individuals in a truck displaying the, the rebel flag hanging proudly from, the, from behind, um, as well as you know many uh, racist instances where people were, uh, were proudly emblazoned with the flag. So it wasn't until then that I started forming some sort of opinion. Yeah. So so the symbolism dramatically shifted for you. Now, I understand that the high school that you attended, the Confederate flag was flown. Yeah. So that that was our symbol. And uh, and this was this was way back in, in, in 1993 was the year that I graduated. And even then, uh, African-Americans had had, you know, were taking issue with the flag and uh, as as a, as a senior and as an honor student, uh, they they valued my opinion, so they they asked what my thoughts were uh, about all of the uh, the issues that were forming around the flag. And my simple response was, well, if this is supposed to be a symbol of school spirit and bring people together, um, and it's tearing people apart, why would you want to keep that as a symbol of school spirit and togetherness? So they decided they were going to remove it back then. Um, but they, they, they never really did. They just changed some things around, and there were still some, some symbols that were still kind of ingrained. And, and it hasn't been until just this year with the uh, George Wallace incident that uh, students graduating this year uh, demanded that that flag would be removed, and so it's been removed now. So it was it was the videotape of George Floyd and the protests and all that came after that 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 finally did it. Similar to NASCAR and Mississippi state flag. So Nelson, for you, given you know this is so so personal that you were 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 harassed um, with the symbol of that flag accompanying that harassment that you experienced. Do you have uh, strong emotions about it coming down from your high school? 
Well, well, I do, and I think that you know, you, if you look at the flag and you look at the monuments as well, as well, and you you look at the history, um, the, the the monuments, um, uh, most of them were were put up by the Daughters of Confederacy specifically to sort of um, thumb you know thumb a nose at uh, at the, the 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 people that that did not want you know the slavery and who actually you know who won the war and whatnot. And so these things are very prevalent in public spaces for people to see. So um, when you when you do when you look at the history, there's a very specific reason, and I, and I think that's where we as African Americans have have taken a deep dive, and uh, and want people to understand why it is that it's offensive and and why we don't we don't want those in the public space. Nelson, I so appreciate you sharing your high school experiences with us and uh some of them clearly, you know, just terrible experiences and how your understanding of the Confederate flag shifted over that time. We really appreciate it. Let me take another listener call. This is from Carmi. I understand you grew up in both North Carolina and Georgia. Uh, share your experiences briefly, please. I grew up um, in, in North Carolina. My grandparents would show up, and we would go tour the Confederate battlefields and go see the places where, quote, those Yankees would hold my great-great-grandfather who fought for the South. And I have to say we were fed this narrative of um, this was all about states' rights. It was not about slavery. That was something that the people from the North added on to, you know, make their cause just. But this was really about states' rights. And the flag symbolized that, like this kind of like proud individualism of states' rights. And it really wasn't until I became an adult and started educating myself and learning. And I think it's because I left the South that I, that I did that and became you know, uh, friends with a, a vast variety of, of people that that I realized how wrong that teaching was. Carmi, have you had conversations with family members over this, or has your family shifted in his perspective at all? You know, that's what's funny. I grew up in a very liberal family in the South, which is a rarity, but my father was a was an Episcopal priest, and, and uh, we were very liberal. And even in a very liberal family, there was this kind of whitewashing of what that flag meant. I mean, we, we all, uh, yes, my cousins and I have talked about it now, um, about, you know, how when my cousin went off to college, he was so homesick. He, he came here to UCLA and he was so homesick, he hung the flag up in his dorm room. I assume that didn't go over well. <laughs> Not, and he was so baffled by it because to him it just meant the South. Yeah, taste, taste of home. Carmi, I so appreciate it. We're, we're getting short on time, but I want to go back to Professor Matthew Delmont of, of Dartmouth College. Um, so interesting to hear from people who, who have um, this cultural tie, particularly when they're young, and then that shifts over time. Absolutely. And I think the uh, first call, I think Nelson from Dallas saying that this is part of just the iconography of the or the logo and the mascot of his high school. Um, going into this year, there were nearly 2000 different Confederate symbols in public spaces. So not just the monuments and the flags, but schools and roads and hospitals named after uh, Confederates or um, aspects of the Confederacy. Um, so again, it, just the way in which it's been sort of normalized as part of the landscape. And then to the second caller, um, it's one of the most successful history campaigns of all time to get 
this what scholars call the lost cause version of the Civil War history, where you we present the history of the South as being a, a noble, just cause. Um, we uh, paper over or whitewash the history of slavery. That was the mainstream approach to how this history was taught in almost all American high schools and colleges through the 20th century. Um, obviously, through the Daughters of the Confederacy, had a huge imprint on the public history of it. Um, and I think that's important as we think about it now, that this is not just a moment of political correctness or cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, but that people have been fighting these battles over this history for, for generations and generations. And um, I think, as uh, Professor Pierce mentioned, that now that we're finally starting to listen more to the voices of, of black Americans and black Mississippians, um, we're seeing different um, different choices being made. All right. Uh, Frank, in Cathedral City and the Coachella Valley, quick, uh, quick uh, memory from your Southern childhood. I think if uh, you grow up in the South and you get exposed to this history from that point of view, you certainly may have a tendency to ignore that original sin of the American democratic experiment, which is slavery. But I also think if you try to look at the struggles of the great men, uh, Abraham Lincoln and uh, Ulysses Grant and the people who took up the uh, uh, banner of the Union, and you try to pretend they weren't fighting against anybody, that's not going to serve the public discourse. I think that uh, if you try to eliminate history, if you try to banish history, then you're traveling down the same pathway as China in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, certainly history is written by the winners, but uh, I think that to pretend that either side of any argument, you know, it's easy to, to look at uh, um things through a retroscope and say, okay, this is 100% bad and this is 100% good. I don't hear much discussion uh, about the deplorable union POW camps. I don't hear much about the campaign of Sherman that stripped an entire area of the South of the ability to grow its own food or feed its own people. All right. Hey, Frank, uh, we're getting short on time. I appreciate, though, um, your contribution to the conversation. Professor Pierce, do you want to respond to that? Well, I think, you know, you hear a lot about uh, this eliminating history stuff. And I think, uh, um, you know, as uh, Professor Delmont would would probably agree, is that what we as historians want is for people to look at the history. And I think uh, uh, that's what we need to do is to look with a clear eye at the history because, uh, again, much of what has passed for history, particularly the South and the Confederacy, was uh, totally invented. And so when you look at it with a clear eye and when you look at it um, from the public perspective, you know, not just from a single segment of society, get a very different picture and, I, and and fortunately i think you know we're we're in a historical moment here where uh, not only are people starting to listen more to voices from the black community but they're also starting to maybe listen a bit uh, a, a bit to historians which is a great development i think daniel pierce is one of those historians he's at the university of north carolina Asheville and author of real nascar white lightning red clay and big bill france professor thank you for being with us and from dartmouth college historian matthew delmont matt thank you also for being with us we really appreciate you sharing this uh, broader history of the confederate battle flag 
Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up, we talk about Facebook's decision to ban a number of different groups associated with the Boogaloo movement. We'll find out what it is coming up on Air Talk in just 90 seconds. He had one of the smoothest voices in all of broadcasting and one of the lowest key, most comforting demeanors of all, Hugh Downs. Uh, And if you're of a certain age, you remember him as longtime host of the Today Show. And then he switched to ABC where he was the longtime host of 2020. Hugh Downs has died at the age of 99, near century, that Hugh Downs reached And uh, just uh, nice to take a moment to pay tribute to uh, his terrific broadcasting talent. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC, a reminder that Governor Newsom has a new news conference coming up today. We will be bringing it to you live right here after Air Talk on KPCC. Tomorrow, we are off for the holiday for our first hour. There's no Air Talk tomorrow, but there is Film Week. I'll be with you tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Our critics review Hamilton, which is uh, the filmed version of the stage production filmed on stage in the Richard Rogers Theater on Broadway, the original cast, uh, its uh, writer, of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Philip Sue, Leslie Odom Jr., David Diggs, uh, all in this production that'll be uh, streaming on Disney+. Plus. We'll hear what our critics think, as well as the documentary John Lewis, Good Trouble, which takes a look at the civil rights uh, and political activist. But right now, we turn our attention to Facebook, where uh, Facebook had uh, Mark Zuckerberg as been facing tremendous criticism over uh, not uh, removing more uh, examples of what critics call hate speech or groups that critics say engage in hate speech. However, Facebook this week uh, decided to uh, remove a number of groups that are associated with what is known as the Boogaloo movement. It's an extremist group, members of it, or or those at least who've been uh, affiliated with it, uh, have been arrested Uh, as a result of attacks on law enforcement. And with us to talk about what the group is, which none of us really heard about until recently, is Wall Street Journal reporter who covers domestic terrorism, Rachel Levy. Rachel, thank you for being with us. Uh, How recent is Boogaloo? Thanks for having me. Uh, So the Boogaloo movement is something that is fairly new to the larger public. Um, There have been notable instances in the last few months, uh, namely around um, some of the protests around reopening states and businesses, and um, in in some cases tied to uh, some of the anti-racism protests we've seen uh, in in sort of recent times. But it is not an entirely new phenomenon. Um, It's essentially sort of an internet subculture that has existed across social media platforms much farther back, at least as far back as a year or two ago. And uh, I understand that there is a spectrum within their ideology, but but generally it's it's um, very anti-government. That's generally one of the the main threads that that goes through it. Um, uh, you know, people who affiliate quote, with the quote unquote Boogaloo movement, um, if if we can even call it as such, it's a very loose knit group. Um, 
they they tend to be anti-authority. They tend to be very pro-gun rights. Um, you know, some of them, uh, you know, took took part in some of the anti-racism protests uh, to protest police brutality because that sort of lined up with their views on authority. Um, but you also have some who uh, would be classified as white supremacists too. So you really have a wide range of, of people who might be um, affiliated sort of with this internet subculture. And um, how frequently do they show up wearing the Hawaiian shirts and armed to these different protests and events? That, I mean, to classify that in a numbers basis, I, I can't do. It's something that has shown up more recently, obviously, with the with the nationwide protests we had um, following um, the killing of George Floyd. Um, but that, that is one of the sort of defining factors our defining um, imagery around, around this movement is the wearing of uh, Hawaiian shirts. Is there any intersection with Antifa, uh, which is also, again, very loose sort of um, movement, and and uh, some of uh, Antifa's anarchist perspective? Does any of that cross over into the ideology of some of the, the Boogaloo adherents? So researchers I've spoken with have noticed that occasionally you'll have people who might have affiliated more with an, an, an Antifa type ideology moving over to uh, uh, the, the Boogaloo ideology, if we can call it as such. It's, um, you know, again, these terms are very loose. Um, but generally speaking, no, they are, they are separate. Do, and do some of them see themselves as sort of um, natural antagonists to Antifa? Uh, some, potentially, yeah. I, I can't speculate too much on that, though. And and so the consistency would be gun rights, uh, anti-authoritarianism, anything else that you would say are pretty consistent hallmarks of Boogaloo? Um, I don't know if I can curse on this show, but... <laughs> uh, can can you find a, a non-curse... Uh... <laughs> There's a term in, in, Euphemism. in, in social media parlance of uh, sort of bad-mouthing... Uh, online for fun, for humor, among, uh, and and um, and that is that is the term that is often used when describing what people affiliating with this this grouping um, uh, are like online. This is, this is largely started online on platforms like Facebook, um, where uh, mostly young white guys who were you know kind of thought the same about. Um, Second Amendment and, and pro-gun rights, that kind of thing, were sharing memes and making jokes with one another, uh, making fun of, um, of uh, you know, politicians who they thought maybe are coming for their guns, that kind of thing. So that is sort of one of the other defining factors of, of this grouping. Have you been able to trace back where the name came from? So the name comes from sort of like an inside joke uh, around a 1980s film uh, called The Electric Boogaloo. It's, uh, I'm blanking now exactly on the name of it, but it was a, basically a breakdancing movie. And it started as an inside joke. And, and Boogaloo now sort of refers to uh, an, up, an uprising against the government. It, um, some people would say it, um, it's an uprising 
uh, related to a race war, if, if they're more on the, you know, white supremacy side of things. Um, some who have shared in these memes would say the Boogaloo is, uh, you know, an inside joke to make fun of the people who are more on uh, the prepper side of, you know, feeling that they need to prepare for um, being completely self-sufficient. Um, and and I, putting all these caveats just to say, to explain that it's, it's really not an entirely coherent group and, and researchers are still trying to, to get their head around sort of who all these people are. But the, the general theme is that, um, you know, they're very much online. Um, they tend to, to have, um, you know, strong beliefs around guns and um, they like to make, make memes and right. make fun of each other online. It's so difficult. I know with so many, when you're talking about groups that are essentially social media phenomenons, but then showing up uh, also, um, you know, physically at, at events as well to sort of, you know, what what are the cohesive elements of the movement? We're talking about Boogaloo, um, which the name comes from uh, sort of loosely, as we heard from Rachel Levy, from the film Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, with us also, professor at UC Davis School of Law, Ash, uh, Ashutosh Bhagwat. Professor, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, your thoughts about Facebook making this move? Obviously, it's not the government. They can exclude, you know, pretty much whoever they want from, from various groups. But uh, when Facebook has been reluctant to do some of this, about its decision to finally take the step. So, right. So, first of all, you're absolutely right. As a private platform, Facebook is not subject to the First Amendment. They not only can exclude the group, they probably have a constitutional right to do so. Nobody has a right to access them. Having said that, given how much political discourse is now on social media, we would all have to be concerned if there was a perception that social media was biasing the conversation one way or the other, which I, by the way, do not believe is true. There's no evidence to support it. So on the other hand, I also understand why Facebook would want to not be hosting very extreme hate speech or violence. And I think what happened is that some point recently, Facebook decided that the Boogaloo movement had crossed the line. It had become way too associated with sort of outright violence, such as the shooting of um, the federal officer in Oakland. Um, and therefore, they decided it had crossed the line. I have to say, anytime you start excluding content, line drawing is really hard. It's why when the government tries to do it, we have very strict First Amendment rules, which almost certainly would not reach Boogaloo. I think Boogaloo could not be silenced by the government. But I think Facebook made the judgment that these guys had gone beyond simply sort of random talking with a violent tone to pretty much outright endorsement of violence to the point where violence was occurring. Yeah, and and so... Um how is that determined? Because sometimes you have people who um, you trace back their associations. They've been on particular websites. They've been in contact with extremist groups, but they're acting as an individual. Um, and, and you know, I don't know if that's the case with these attacks on law enforcement officers, uh, the, you know, these terrible uh, incidents that took place. If that is um, linked to other people in the group or whether it's someone who just subscribes to the loose ideology of the group. And then, you know, how should a social media platform, in your view, respond to that? Right. So that's, I mean, as Rachel Levy was saying, it's very hard to draw lines here because these guys are not an organization. 
right? It's a loosely affiliated online movement. There is no central authority. There's huge variation in who is, joins up. But it's important to remember, for example, in the case of the Oakland shooting, it was not a lone person. It was two people, right? Both of whom were linked through basically Boogaloo conversations online. But I guess not to each other. That was the, the point. But yes, I understand. Yeah. Well, not to each other, right? But but they um, but I mean, there were two of them. One of them was driving the the van, and the other one was the shooter. And but you, you know, you're right. Just because there's an org, there's a movement in which a couple of people act out violently, I don't think that would be enough reason to shut down the organization. Certainly, as Facebook, I wouldn't want to do that. I think, on the other hand, if you feel like the whole point, or most of the point of a particular loose grouping becomes either hate speech or violence, and you don't want that on your platform because you don't want to be associated with that, you, you pull the plug. How you draw those lines, I mean, I got to tell you, I'm glad it's not my job. Um, this is always the problem with any form of censorship is line drawing becomes really hard. We're talking with UC Davis, professor of law, Ash Bhagwat. Uh, his uh, recently published book, Our Democratic First Amendment, just out from Cambridge University Press. Professor, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. And Rachel Levy, Wall Street Journal reporter who covers domestic terrorism, also with us to talk about this very loose affiliation or movement known as Boogaloo, which Facebook just banned a couple hundred groups that uh, were associated with Boogaloo. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC coming up. We'll be talking about the effect of China's new law in Hong Kong on Southern California. It's Air Talk back in 1 minute. Yesterday, Hong Kong police made the first arrests under the new national security law imposed by China's central government. Thousands of people defied that law, uh, and they were um, pelted with uh, pepper pellets, tear gas, uh, them um, in favor of democracy and protesting against the new national security law. It followed the anti-government protests in Hong Kong last year, and it makes secessionist, subversive, or terrorist activities illegal, as well as foreign intervention in Hong Kong's internal affairs. Uh, Lesser offenders could receive jail terms of up to three years, short-term detention, or restriction, but the most serious offenders those who are deemed to be masterminds behind these activities could receive life imprisonment. With us is Washington reporter for the BBC World Service, Zhao Ying Feng. Zhao Ying, thank you for being with us. Um, first of all, what is the latest on uh, protests and arrests in Hong Kong? Well, as you mentioned, on the first day when the law comes into effect, uh, the Hong Kong police arrested over 400 of protesters, uh, and at least a dozen of them uh, were arrested due to violation of this new law. Uh, and the latest is that people are still talking about this law, but at the same time, some of them have already started self-censoring. 
Um, I, I know people who live in Hong Kong or even outside of Hong Kong, they were talking about this new law on their social media, but now they're considering uh, keeping a low profile, even removing what they post before. And uh, I doubt that uh, the United Kingdom is looking at, at potentially offering citizenship uh, to, for those from Hong Kong. Um, the United States has talked about uh, residency, legal residency. Um, what is the sense of, of what kind of uh, uh, flight there might be of people from Hong Kong to other countries? What we're looking right now, it's very similar to the situation after the Tiananmen incident in 1989. A lot of people in Hong Kong are looking to immigrate to foreign countries, especially the UK and the US. And now we're looking at two immigration-related views in the US Congress right now. If they are passed, uh, the views are going to give asylum priority to Hong Kong residents who are at risk uh, of uh, political persecution. It will own, uh, also expedite green card applications of uh, Hong Kong residents and even create a new visa type for those high-skilled uh, Hong Kong immigrants. Uh, however, we know that the current atmosphere in the current administration is pretty anti-immigration. It's unclear whether these two views will get passed or eventually signed by the White House, but in the past two years, we indeed have seen a lot of bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress for Hong Kong. Now, uh, one of the things I understand the law does is it makes subject to um, this this uh, national security law people who are from Hong Kong, who have uh, passports, uh, or even people who are non-Hong Kong citizens overseas. How, w- how would this possibly work? You're absolutely right. So a little bit about the law. This new national security law prohibits secession, subversion, terrorism and collusion with a foreign country or external element to endanger China's national security. Um, and there is this provision now is pretty infamous. It's the Article 38. It covers offenses by non-permanent residents of Hong Kong outside of the city, which means you and I and all the audience today will be subjected to the law. Uh, However, it's indeed very hard for China to uh, pursue these offenses committed outside of Hong Kong, but it's already instilling some fear and anxiety. For example, you might think again before you say something supporting the Hong Kong protests or post something because you might still want to go to China in the future. At the same time, you are also thinking about all the other countries which are close to China or have extradition treaties with China like Thailand, Cambodia, Pakistan, you name it. So this will create a lot of fear and self-censorship. We're talking with BBC World Service reporter Zhao Ying Fang, also with us from the Hong Kong Forum Los Angeles nonprofit that promotes democratic development in Hong Kong uh, and China, Gabriel Law. Gabe, thank you for being with us again. Uh, you're part of, of uh, those b- group based in Hong Kong. You supported the protests in the city. With this Pat Law's implementation, are you concerned about your safety, even though you're here? Uh, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, our organization just hosted a rally yesterday, uh, last evening, 
in Monterey Park, uh, we have over 200 people coming. Uh, it was obviously a very peaceful protest, but um, we emphasize the need that, especially now, when there are so much restrictions in Hong Kong and people getting scared, uh, we need to exercise our freedom here in the United States so that people in Hong Kong know there are still plenty of folks fighting for them uh, overseas. Uh, I also know of uh, another rally uh, last night at about the same time in Canada as well. What, what, yeah. Would you be uh, fearful of going back to Hong Kong to visit? I don't know if you have family or friends there, but now with this law, would you not want to do that? I think that's on a lot of Hong Kong people's mind. Um, at the end of the day, it's a very individual decision. Uh, sometimes it's not just you. Maybe you con- you're concerned about your family. Maybe you have a brother or sister working for the government. Um, what, what, what are they going to do? Would they, would they be hassled by the police? Uh, and uh, I guess one of the really most worrisome parts of this so-called law is that there is an introduction of secret police. Uh, now Hong Kong has become a secret police state or city. And um, they, they, they can come visit you or your family um, and, and hustle them and so on. I don't know if you yeah. have I- any participants in the Hong Kong Forum Los Angeles who have um, family members back in, in Hong Kong that, you know, there might be concerns about. Could, could that um, have a dampening influence on in members of the group wanting to be public about uh, their support for this? I'm sure some, some will have uh, some worries, but um, at the same time, we also see through this, this law is actually very poorly written, and it, everything is so vague, and once you see through that, you know that this law is there to in, introduce fear in, in, in our mind, and uh, if we are living in this free country of the United States, and we being thousands of miles away, and we are in fear of it, then there's really no hope. So we have to be not fear about that. We have to stand up and continue to voice out. There's no other choice. Gabriel Law, thank you so much. We appreciate it. He's spokesman for the Hong Kong Forum Los Angeles, nonprofit promoting democratic development in Hong Kong and China. And our thanks to BBC World Service, Zhao Ying Feng, as well. Have a terrific afternoon. Governor Newsom's uh, news conference on COVID-19 comes right up. Air Talk is off uh, tomorrow, but Film Week comes your way tomorrow, Friday at 11 o'clock.